You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So John chapter 16, it was the same passage that we uh, read for the scripture reading. We're going to be looking today at verses 5 through 5, uh, 5 through 11. Verses 5 through 11. And when you found your place, let's bow our heads in prayer before we begin. Our gracious Father, we long to know more of you. And the only way that that is possible is to see you and to know you as you were revealed in the pages of scripture. In your holy word is written all that we need for life and for godliness. It is sufficient to give us a revelation of you, our great and glorious, and gracious, and majestic triune God. And so we pray that you, through your Spirit, would open our eyes and our hearts to your Word. Help us to see our our great triune God in the face of Christ, to behold your glory, so that we might honor you and glorify you. We pray that your Spirit would help us to understand that rightly and appropriately, so that you would be glorified in the hearts of your people and in our lives as we obey what is written in your Word. Thank you for giving us such a clear revelation of yourself, and make it clear to us now as we seek to understand it and to honor you appropriately through it. We ask this in the name of the Divine Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, John is is one of the authors in Scripture that gives us a lot of detail on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, John has more to say about the person of the Holy Spirit than any of the other three Gospel writers. That's not to say that John, that the other Gospel writers do not tell us about the Holy Spirit. They do. But John seems to emphasize the person and work of Christ, because the book is about the Lord Jesus Christ, but in giving to us a a, a revelation of who Christ is, John cannot help but also incorporate into that uh, an understanding of who the Father is and who the Son is as well. So in giving us more information about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, John is forced, as it were, because of the nature of the subject matter, to give us more information about the Holy Spirit and the Father as well. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us about the Father and they tell us about the Spirit, but because of John's emphasis, he gives us more detail on the person of the Holy Spirit than any of the three Gospel writers. You would be able to make a case for the deity of Christ from Matthew or Mark or Luke, and you put them all together and you get a picture of a triune God who is active in redemption. We, we don't need John to come to an understanding of who Christ is, that he is fully God, but that is uniquely John's emphasis. He gives us a glimpse into the nature of the triune God through Christ. This is a bad analogy, but Christ is the window through which we see all of God's nature. The Father and the Spirit, we behold all of the glory of the triune God incorporated in the person and the nature and the work of Christ. So as we look at Christ in the pages of Scripture, we see through Him who God is. And we see the relationship that he has with the Father. We see the relationship that he has with the Spirit. We see the relationship that the Father and the Spirit have to each other. Our glimpse into the nature of God is through the person of Christ. And John wants us to believe in Christ as he is revealed in the pages of Scripture. So we see in John a a, a revelation of the Son that gives us a glimpse into a revelation of the Father and the Spirit as well. And all of their cooperative roles in the work of redemption. So, for instance, we learn from the Gospel of John that the Father chose a people in eternity past, and He gave those people to the Son, 
and committed to the Son the work of redeeming those people, and then sent the Son into the world to redeem those whom the Father gave to the Son. The Son, for His role, receives those whom the Father has given to Him, and because He loves the Father, He willingly condescends and steps into human history, takes upon Himself the nature of man, not divorcing Himself from deity, not losing any of His divine attributes, but veiling them in flesh, He steps into the world, and because He loves the Father, and because He loves those whom the Father has given to Him, He offers Himself on a cross to pay the sin debt for all those whom the Father has committed to His charge. The Spirit of God, because He loves the Father, and He loves the Son, and He loves those whom the Father gave to the Son, the Spirit, at the command of the Father and the Son, comes into the world to give new life, to regenerate those whom the Father gave to the Son and whom the Son died for. The Spirit of God regenerates them. The Spirit of God indwells them. The Spirit of God empowers them for service. And the Spirit of God cooperates in according to the will of the Father and the Son. The Spirit of God cooperates in the salvation, the sanctification, and the security of all those whom the Father has committed to the Son. So all three persons of the Holy Trinity are working together in concert, with one will, each of them fulfilling different roles to accomplish the redemption of God's elect. John wants us to believe that. And not to say simply, I can give mental assent to those doctrines. Yes, I was raised in a Reformed church. Or yes, I've come to understand that that's what Scripture says. Not just to give mental assent to those doctrines, but to embrace them and to make them our own and to believe upon them savingly so that those doctrines are as if they are our life, because they are. And John does not want us to believe in a Jesus who we make up in our minds. John does not want us to believe in a Jesus of myth or of cultural uh, uh, creation. John wants us to believe in the Jesus who is the Yahweh of the Old Testament manifested in the flesh, who could say, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That is the Jesus that we are to embrace. The one who said, unless you believe that I am, that is, that I am Yahweh, the eternal God, who took the name of God to himself, you will die in your sins. And we must believe savingly on that. But in revealing all of those details about the divine plan of salvation, John gives to us a wealth of information on the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we come now today to yet another passage on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Beginning in verse 5, we're going to, over the course of the next two weeks, cover verses 5 through 15. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11 this morning. I'm thankful for what John writes about the Spirit because in these passages that we have been looking at through the Gospel of John, there is, in all of this wealth of information about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, there is a lot there that corrects what I think are modern-day misunderstandings and abuses of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Of the three persons of the Trinity, I, can, I think we can say without reservation that today, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the most misunderstood He is the most abused, the most misrepresented, and the most blasphemed member of the Holy Trinity. And so what we get in John is information that helps correct us so that we understand correctly the the Spirit. To understand the Father right and to understand the Son right and to understand the Holy Spirit right is to have our doctrine of God correct. And we want to have our doctrine of God correct. But we don't want to misunderstand the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So what we see in verses 5 through 15 is going to go a long ways toward helping correcting some of those Abuses and misunderstandings. Next week we'll look at verses 12 through 15, which is uh, John describes there Jesus through J- John, Jesus through John, 
Jesus' words, Jesus describes there the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing the Son and what the purpose of that is. And he describes there what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is for us today. And today we're going to look at verses 5 through 11, and we're going to divide that into two parts. Um, We're going to deal with both parts today. Verses 5 through 11. Jesus describes here the work and personal work of the Holy Spirit as it concerns two different groups of people. First, believers, and second, the world. Believers in verses 5 through 7, and the world, verses 8 through 11. And the passage quite naturally divides into those two groups, so that will be our outline for this morning. The work and ministry of the Holy Spirit as it pertains to believers is that of comfort, verses 5 through 7, and the Holy Spirit's work and ministry to the world comes in terms of conviction, verses 8 through 11. So let's read those verses together, and then we'll dive in at verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it pertains to believers is one of comfort. Verses 5 and 6 is is something of a mild reproof, and I don't want you to miss this. Jesus said to them, Now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going. There's a mild, gentle rebuke in those words. He had been telling them that he was leaving them, and he had been telling them this for months, and they understood this. This was one of the major themes of the entire evening. Chapter 13, 14, 15, and now again in chapter 16, he has mentioned this over and over and over again, that he was leaving them. He was going to the Father, back to him who sent me, back to heaven. He told him, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So constantly this evening, the last evening with the disciples, he has reminded them that he is leaving. Now, this had also been the theme of the last probably 6 to 8, 10, 12 months of of Jesus' ministry with the disciples, he had told them over and over again that he would be leaving. He was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He would be crucified. On the third day, he would rise again. Uh, this is what he had predicted. He had told this, this time and time again. And now this evening, he has told them, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has here. It has come. It has arrived. And I will not say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this reason, I have come to this hour. So now he has told them over and over again that he is leaving. They, of course, are anxious. And here's the reproof. None of you have asked me, where are you going? What did Jesus mean by that? The subtle rebuke is this. I have told you that I am leaving, and yet none of you have been concerned enough about me to ask me, where are you going? That's kind of a rebuke, isn't it? In fact, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but Jesus, throughout the course of this whole evening, Jesus had been the one encouraging them. Here was the Master telling them that He was about ready to be crucified. He was about ready to die. Here was the Master ready to be delivered into the hands of sinners only probably minutes or maybe a couple of hours at the most away from being betrayed by Judas. And it is the Lord Jesus who is comforting them. They should have been comforting Him. And yet everything about this evening and all of their questions and all of their concerns, all of it pertained to him, uh, them, him, His leaving and what it meant for them. Now you may say, but he says, no one of you asked me where I am going. Don't I remember at some point that evening that one of them asked him, or didn't two of them ask him where he was going? Does it sound familiar? Turn back to chapter 13. Back to chapter 13. Look at verse 34. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me, but now, but you will follow later. Then look down at chapter 14, verse 5, after Jesus told them, You know the way where I am going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Thomas, in verse 5, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, how do we know the way? Now, doesn't that sound like two questions of somebody asking Jesus, where are you going and how do we get there? It does, doesn't it? But Jesus' point, and we saw this as when we looked at those two passages, Jesus' point in chapter, uh, in chapter 16, let me get my chapters right. We've been going through John so quickly, I have a hard time getting the chapters right. Jesus' point in John chapter 16 is that their concern, even in asking those questions previously, was not really about him. When Peter asked that, Peter just wanted to follow him. And when Thomas asked that, Thomas was curious about the way. How to get there. And Jesus' point in chapter 16 is, I've told you I'm leaving. I've told you I'm going back to the Father. They should have discerned that this meant crucifixion, that this meant His death and His departure, and yet none of them bothered to ask Him, so what does this mean for you? Lord, we should be concerned about comforting you. We ought to be concerned about your interests. He was about ready to be crucified, and He is comforting them. That's the mild reproof. And sorrow, because they were so self-centered and so focused on themselves and what His departure would mean For them, not for him, but for them, for that reason, sorrow had filled their heart. Look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Why were they sorrowful? Because they were thinking about whom? Themselves. What would his departure mean for us? It meant the hostility of the world. It meant persecution. It meant possibly death. It meant that he was no longer going to be there for us. And so they were thinking in terms of what this meant for themselves rather than what it meant for him. So none of them even bothered to inquire as to what all of this meant for him. That's the idea. And, and so he's mildly reproving them for that. Sorrow had filled their heart. They should, their hearts should have been filled with joy. Joy at the thought that he was leaving this earth to go back to the presence of the Father and his glory. Joy at the thought that they, that they would have realized that he was going back to the worship of angels. Joy at the thought of his victory over death in the resurrection. Joy at the thought that he was going to prepare a place for them and that he would come again. And joy at the realization that he was going to give them the Holy Spirit in the meantime. All of this information should have filled their hearts with joy, but all they were thinking about was what it meant for them. And there's a mild reproof there. Now I bring that up not because I'm trying to pick on the disciples. I'm not. I get to spend eternity with this man, and I have, I have no intention of picking a fight with them before I get there. Only to point out that these men, like all of us, are we have failures, we have weaknesses, And listen, given the same set of circumstances, the same evening, I put myself there. I might hope that it might not be the case, but I know for certain it would be the case that I would fail just as miserably as any of these 11 men did that evening. Right? We ought to remember the best of men are men at best. These are just average men who who at this moment were very self-centered and focused. But the Lord, being very gracious as he was, promised them the helper, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 7. All right, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Is there anybody sitting here who that evening would have thought that the death and departure of Jesus would be to their advantage? Any of you come to that conclusion? I wouldn't have come to that conclusion. If I were Peter or John or any of those men standing there listening to that, I would have said to myself, to our advantage. How is it better for us that you leave? How is that advantageous for us? For the last three years, they had become, they had become used to 
to hearing Him guide them and teach them and instruct them, and they had become dependent upon Him for everything. He had provided for them. They had a deep and lasting friendship with Him. He was their comforter and their strengthener and encouragement to them in all of life's trials and difficulties. They had sat at the feet of the greatest teacher ever to live for three years and listened to Him teach about the wonders of heaven and the glories of the life to come and the glories of the kingdom and, and the nature of the kingdom of God. And now He's leaving. And He says to them, it is better for you that I leave. In what way would it, in what possible way would it be possible for it to be better for him to leave than to stay there with them that evening? How is that to their advantage? Because you and I would never come to that conclusion that it was advantageous for them, for him to leave. I want you to notice two things. First, the spirit indwelling us is better than Christ presently, physically present with us. I will, uh, the spirit of Christ dwelling in us is better than Christ physically present with us. This might be hard for us to get our minds around until we understand that when Jesus promised the person of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He promised us another helper. Remember the word another back in chapter 14, verse 26? That word another means another of the same nature, another of the same kind, indicating that there is a oneness of nature and a oneness of essence and substance between the Son and the Spirit. So He is promising us another helper, that is, another uh, helper of the same kind as Jesus is. And it would be better for them because the Spirit of God present in us is an omnipresent reality when the person of Christ present with us physically is not an omnipresent reality. It is Christ only with us in one place at one time. But with the Spirit of God present in the lives and the hearts of people indwelling us as a result of the gift of the Son, the Spirit of God could be in Philip as he is evangelizing an Ethiopian eunuch, and at the very same time, 200 miles away, be in Peter who is evangelizing somebody in the city of Jerusalem. He could be with Paul in Rome as Paul is ministering and serving and teaching there. And he could be with Peter in Jerusalem while Peter is ministering and teaching there. You see how much better that is? Not only that, but we have the giftedness of the Holy Spirit. How much better is it that the Spirit of God lives within each individual believer and He dwells amongst us corporately so that He is with us everywhere that we go at all times, in all places, and He and He gifts us and empowers us for service. How much better is that than merely having the incarnate and uh, limited Lord present with us physically? To have the Holy Spirit with us invisibly is better than having Christ with us physically. That is not how we think, is it? Typically, we think that God gave us a downgrade when Christ left and we got the Holy Spirit. That's how we think. But Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, meaning you're about to get an upgrade. And the upgrade, and I don't mean to be irreverent, the upgrade is the Spirit of God. Do you understand that God in His redemptive plan never gives a downgrade? It's never lesser. All through redemptive history and redemptive revelation, it was always more revelation, more truth, more light, more knowledge, more understanding, more prophets, until the person of Christ arrived. And then when Christ arrived, we get a better sacrifice, a better priesthood, a better high priest, a better revelation, a better house than Moses built. Everything with Christ is better. A better sacrifice, a better fulfillment. Everything reaches what we think is the zenith. And then we have all of that contained for us in Scripture. And then Christ departs and gives to us that better sacrifice and enters into that better priesthood. And guess what we get? We get God not present with us physically, Emmanuel God with us, but God with us and in us. That is so much better. So much better than having the having Christ in His humiliation just with them presently. God does not give any downgrades in His plan of redemption. Everything is more. Everything is better. And in the Old Testament, the personal work of the Holy Spirit, what we saw there, was just foreshadows and anticipation of what the Spirit would be in the New Covenant, which we have. 
And we have something better than Christ here physically present in his humiliation. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. It is to our advantage that he goes away. It is to our advantage that he goes away. So not only is it better to have the Holy Spirit in us, invisibly, than Christ here with us physically, presently, but second, there is a connection here that exists between Christ leaving and the Spirit coming. And I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is saying, if I don't go, I can't send the Spirit or the Spirit will not come. Look at verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's your advantage to him, to them, that he go away, because if he doesn't go, the Holy Spirit will not come. There is some in the providence and the plan of God. There is a connection between Christ going to be with the Father and the Spirit coming to be with his people. And one had to happen before the other could become a reality. There are other passages of Scripture that speak of this connection. I'll give you two of them. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Peter on the day of Pentecost, when they had seen the outpouring of the Spirit of God and the gifts of the Spirit of God, Peter said, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Christ, has poured forth this with which you both see and hear. Notice in that verse, all three persons of the Trinity are there. Christ, having gone to the right hand of the Father and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has now poured out this thing which He had promised. And Peter is saying that that pouring out of the Spirit was the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had promised them. So there's the connection. He went to the Father and then gave us the Spirit. And then in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John writes this, But this, Jesus spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in the providence and plan of God, he was waiting for the Spirit, for Jesus to be glorified before he gave the Holy Spirit. And why is that? Well, to spoil a little bit of next week's time together, we read further on in John, we find out that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the person of Christ, to reveal the person and the work of Christ, to reveal the finished work of Christ, to bring to our understanding all that Christ is and all that Christ has done. Before the Spirit could do his ministry of revealing the finished work of Christ, what had to happen? The work had to be finished. Right. There had to be some completion to what Jesus did. Once he is glorified and entered into the Holy of Holies and he makes intercession for us as our great high priest, then the Spirit of God could come and point to him and all that he has done. Once that work is finished, once it is completed, then the Spirit of God can point to the completed work of Christ. There's a second reason, I think, that there's a connection between the ascension and the exaltation of Christ and the giving of the Spirit. And that is because the gift of the Spirit is something secured for us by the work of Christ on the cross. It's not just forgiveness of sins and righteousness as if you could say just those things for His people. But it is all of the blessings that we enjoy as part of the new covenant that were secured and purchased through Christ on the cross. So when we look at what Christ did on the cross. There's forgiveness, yes. There's righteousness, yes. But guess what? There's also the gift of the Holy Spirit and all that that means for His people that was purchased on the cross. So Christ purchased that, demonstrated that the Father accepted that purchase price through His resurrection from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is exalted at the right hand of God, entered into the Holy of Holies, and now He can pour out that Holy Spirit whom He promised and then purchased for us through His death on the cross. All right, now look at verse 8. 8 through 11. 8 through 11. And this is... This is the work and person of the Holy Spirit and as it pertains to the world and His activities there is one of conviction. Verse 8, 
And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus there is not saying that the Spirit had never come or that the world had never seen the Spirit or known of the Spirit under the Old Covenant. They did. And we talked about this when we kind of introduced the personal work of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 14. Um, the Spirit of God was there. No, no Old Testament saint ever got saved apart from the work of the Spirit of God. No prophet ever spoke apart from the work of the Spirit of God. Moses was endowed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon men in the Old Covenant for certain purposes and tasks and accomplishing certain works. And the Spirit of God dwelt and abided with the people of God under the Old Covenant. But all of that was anticipating and looking forward to a much greater reality that we now enjoy. And listen, all of what we now enjoy looks forward to its mere deposit on a much greater reality that we will enjoy in the kingdom and in the age to come. So what we get now is far greater than what they had in the Old Covenant. But what we have now is only a down payment, a deposit, as it were, upon a greater reality that we get to enjoy in the kingdom age. So, the Holy Spirit existed, of course, in the Old Testament because He is God. He was there, He was active, He was present, and He abided with. But the coming that Jesus is talking about is a type of coming in power and in function and in role that is much greater than anything enjoyed by the Old Covenant saints, the Old Testament saints. So when He comes, He will fulfill this purpose. Verse 8, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And the word convict there is a word that means it has a few different meanings. One of them can mean just to simply present something to somebody to make them feel guilty. Like you feel convicted when you do something wrong. You feel the guilt of your conscience or you feel the Spirit of God um, ministering to your heart and convicting you and, making, and, and, and bringing to your mind Scripture references that make you feel that that is wrong. You understand that that is wrong. That's how the word convict could be translated. It can also refer to, this is interesting, it can also refer to somebody who answers arguments like in a court to bring evidence against somebody to prove their guilt and thus to bring sort of a judicial conviction against somebody. And it may be that Jesus and John, they have both of those meanings in view because there's a very legal flavor to the whole passage. I don't know if you've noticed this. Remember the word paraclete that's translated helper meant someone called in alongside to help you present your case in court. It was used outside of the New Testament in that way. We already saw back in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to testify to the world. And so we have words like testify and paraclete and convict that are here used in this context. And so if I could create for you a kind of a vivid imagery, the Spirit of God as He works on our behalf, it is as if we are standing before the world and the world is hurling accusations at us and the Spirit of God is our counselor, our legal help called in alongside to answer those accusations. But He goes more than that. He turns the accusations around and aims at a case against the world to convict the world of their sin and unrighteousness. So the Spirit of God performs two functions, as it were. He is our defense attorney and the prosecuting attorney. Now, do you think that if, if, if you were the one being prosecuted, do you think that you could win an argument where the same lawyer is both the prosecutor and the defendant's attorney? Think about that for a second. The Spirit of God functions as our defense attorney to answer the charges brought against us by the world and to turn those around and to aim them back at the world and to convict the world of certain things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. You'll notice that verse 8 is expanded upon in verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 8, or sorry, 9, 10, and 11 each take one of those phrases, sin, righteousness, and judgment, and kind of offer a bit of an expansion. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Um, J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, said this passage, verses 
8 through 11 is perhaps the most difficult sentence in all of John's gospel to interpret. He said there is something here to baffle every interpreter. And I will tell you why that is the case. The word because there could be understood, that preposition because in each of those three phrases could be understood three different ways, which means that the phrase that amplifies sin, righteousness, and judgment, each one of those phrases could be understood as meaning something different. Three possible meanings to that. Furthermore, there seems to be, in some cases, no logical connection between these. Like, for instance, verse 10. When Jesus says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, we ask ourselves, what, what, is, what, what is the connection between righteousness what does it mean for the Spirit to convict the world concerning righteousness? How does the word Spirit convict the world about righteousness? And how is that connected to Him going to the Father and the disciples no longer seeing Him? How does Jesus no longer being seen by the disciples, what does that have to do with the Spirit convicting the world of righteousness? And so sometimes it takes a little bit of effort to sort of bring these together. So understanding this is a very difficult passage to interpret, I'm going to give you what I think is the sense of all three of these. But I want you to understand, I hold this interpretation very loosely in my hand. And I read three different commentaries. There was three different, entirely different takes on what is meant here. And all three of these guys are good. I mean, Leon Morris, John MacArthur, and J.C. Ryle. Those are the three, three different guys, three different takes on this passage. So, you might be thinking to yourself, Jim, if you have no idea what you're talking about, I don't know why I'm sitting here listening to you talk about this. I would sympathize with you. I really do. I'm, I'm not even going to listen to me for the next two minutes. So if you want to tune out... I totally understand. In fact, if I didn't have to stand here and present this to you, I would get up and walk out with you to your car and leave. So I hold all of this loosely. Okay? At least sympathize with me in this, that I have to stand up here and I'm accountable to God to explain something to you that I don't understand. So I think I would rather be sitting where you're at than standing up here trying to explain this. But let me give to you what I think is the sense, and we'll deal with each of these three. And then I'll explain to you the argument against... My own position, just to be fair. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Which sin in particular? Look at verse 9. I think it's the sin of unbelief. Right? Because they do not believe in me. So what is the sin that the Spirit of God is aiming at the unbeliever? It is that sin of unbelief. The Spirit of God, His work to the world is to show the world their unbelief, to show the world the horrific nature of unbelief and the irrational consequences, the irrational act of unbelief and its consequences. That is, in fact, all that John has done through the whole gospel, is it not? Hasn't he continually shown us how irrational, how insane unbelief is in light of the evidence? And he has shown us that men do not reject Christ because of any lack of evidence, but only because they love darkness. Hasn't that been what John is showing us? And so what he is trying to do is he's saying the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is involved in this court setting where the the world attacks us. The Spirit of God is our helper to turn that attack back to the world to show them their unbelief and the nature of that and the ultimate effects of that, namely the judgment of God. So the ultimate answer to that, or the ultimate effect of that, is, uh, the ultimate sin that the Spirit of God is convicting the world of, is that sin of unbelief. What does he mean concerning righteousness? Look at verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What is that about? Well, I've kicked this around a little bit, and I, I think that this is the sense of it. The fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he has ascended into heaven and he has been exalted by the Father and he is now in the Holy of Holies making intercession for us. Keep that in mind. We no longer see him. He's gone to the Father. What does it take to stand in the presence of the Father in the Holy of Holies? What does it take? Pure, undefiled, perfect, infinite righteousness. So what is the work of the Spirit of God toward the world? To show the world their unbelief. And to show that on the flip side of that, they have a lack of righteousness. 
the very thing that they need to stand in the presence of God, they have none of. And so since, as we'll see next week, the role of the Spirit of God is to point people's attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, I think that the goal of doing that is so that we might look to the One who has all the righteousness that we need, so that we might believe in Him and have the righteousness that we lack. So the the resurrection of Christ and His vindication by the Father and His exaltation to the right hand of God, that demonstrates He is the Holy and Righteous One. So do you lack righteousness? Come to Him. The Spirit of God convicts the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. And that is the demonstration that I have the righteousness that the world needs. The Spirit of God convicts the world concerning judgment. What judgment? Well, the ruler, the prince of this world, has been judged. Who's the prince of the world? It's Satan. At the cross and in the resurrection, the final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over all his enemies was announced and it is settled and it is done. And listen, if the ruler of this world is going to be judged, then guess who else is going to be judged? All those who follow the ruler of this world and continue in their rebellion and their alliance with him. So the resurrection, the exaltation of Christ and all the Spirit does is intended to convict the world of sin, of their lack of righteousness, and of the judgment that is most certainly to come. Because if the prince of this world is going to be judged, then the citizens of this world are most certainly going to be judged as well. Does that make sense? Those three elements? You say, that was good. How can anybody possibly disagree with that? Well, let me tell you how somebody could possibly disagree with that. Let me tell you how I would disagree with that. To take that position on the passage is to assume that Jesus is using the term world in these verses a little bit differently than he does in the previous verses. And here's what I mean by that. Beginning in verse chapter 15, verse 18, the Lord uses the term world to refer to all those who are not his. Remember, there are those who are of the world and there are those who have been called out of the world. Two different groups of humanity. Those who belong to the world and those who do not belong to the world. And all the way through the passage, it seems as if Jesus has been consistent in using the term world that way to refer those who are not his and do not belong to him. But in order to make this passage make sense, I have to assume that he is using the term world now in a slightly different way to refer to those who are not his and those who are his who have been called out of the term out of world but have not yet been drawn out of the world by the convicting work of the spirit to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment to come so i got to equivocate just a little bit on the term world now that's the best i can do that's the interpretation of the past i think makes the most sense in light of the context seems to follow the flow of the argument as well as what comes next week and it has the least interpretive difficulty. So, if you zoned out because you didn't want to hear me talk about something I knew nothing about, you can come back to now. Notice that the content of all of the Spirit's work and activity to the believer and to the world, notice that these are salvific terms. Sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. What is in view? What is in view with, with, with God's intention in the world? What is He after? It is the salvation of sinners. That's what this passage would be then describing. It is the salvation of sinners. What is the Spirit intent on? Testifying to the world about love and peace and social justice? No, not at all. Listen, the world can feel loved, the world can be at peace, and the world can have all of their needs met by redistributing wealth, and they will still go to hell. Because none of that solves their problem. The world's problem is their sin, their lack of righteousness, and the judgment to come. What is the Spirit intending on doing to the world? To convict them of their sin their lack of righteousness, and the judgment to come. So that in understanding their sin of unbelief, they might in belief turn to the one who can provide them righteousness so that they will escape the judgment that is to come. And if you want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this world, guess what it involves? Testifying to the world about sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And how do we do that? 
when we present the gospel, when we preach the gospel, when we live the gospel, when we stand up for the gospel, when we present our arguments and be ready to give a defense to every man who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us, when, when we do that and we are committed to that message, then we are cooperating with the Spirit of God in the very thing that the Spirit of God intends to do through the believers whom He indwells. So you want to be at work with the Spirit of God? Do you want to have the Spirit of God active in your life? Then get about these three things. Testifying to this world about its sin, its lack of righteousness, and the judgment that is to come. And when we do that, God uses us as the means to testify to the world of these realities so that the world might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. May God grant us the grace to do that very thing. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so thankful to You for what Your Word reveals about Your nature and Your character and the gifts that You have given to us in the person of Your Holy Spirit. All the blessings and graces that You have given to us have been purchased by Your Son on his death, in His death on the cross. And we thank You for that. We ask that You would give to us the grace to understand rightly the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts and to see opportunities to do what You have called us to do. May Your Spirit be active in using us as the agents of, of testifying to the world about the sin that they have and the righteousness that they lack and the judgment that is to come because of that. Use us, we pray, as Your instruments to boldly proclaim the Gospel that You might be honored and glorified and that the Son might receive the full reward for His sufferings and all that He has done on our behalf. We praise You and we thank You for Your grace, Your kindness, Your goodness, and the salvation that we cherish so much. In the name of Your great Son, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.